Smart Council is a production of New Pattern Counseling, with additional support from Multnomah University. To learn how to support this podcast, visit patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Reese Basimio is a counselor, teacher, and writer, and the founder of New Pattern Counseling in Gresham, Oregon. His clinical specialties are addictions, gender, sexuality, and spirituality. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Smart Council, Attachment and Theology. Smart Council provides perspectives and resources on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma. I'm Reese Basimio, and delighted to bring another conversation to you for your thoughts and interest and education, and maybe a little bit of entertainment, too. Uh, <laughs> I'm excited to be joined tonight by good friend, longtime friend, and most esteemed colleague, Crispin Mayfield. Crispin, welcome. Thank you. Thank I'm you. really glad to be here. Yes. Uh do, uh, Here. Yes, I'm glad to have you <laughs> back. Uh, we had you on our pilot episode, I think, or very close to it, and that was yeah. good. But um, I just like you, so it's nice to see yeah, you Yeah, I know. I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to be... I'm always excited to talk about attachment and uh, spirituality. So. For sure. Uh, really quickly, uh, what's a brief... What's your, what's, your, what's your professional bio at the moment? Like, what do you do and... Yeah, so I've been working at Northwest ADHD Treatment Center uh, for about four years. Uh, so I actually have a focus on ADHD. Um, but what I really have ended up focusing on is um, clients that have experienced emotional abuse or neglect is kind of my sweet spot. And um, I also work with couples. So uh, I've been seeing couples a little bit over a year, but have gotten some, during that time, some extensive training in emotionally focused therapy, which is an attachment focused therapy for couples. Um, But also I went to Bible college um, and have a ministry background. So my wife and I have been, been doing ministry and Uh, underserved neighborhoods for about 10 years. And some of that time was um, in a very like uh, professional role or uh, formal role uh, with an organization called Interchange. Um, And now we just live in our neighborhood and, and uh, try to be involved as we, as, as involved as we can be. That's really exciting. And I mean, I've loved learning about your story and a lot of the things that you've been through as well. And uh, other item in there, you also have a podcast, a yes. most excellent podcast. Uh, uh-huh. You want to you want to pitch that really fast? Yeah. So I just got started, um, but it's called Attached to the Invisible, and it's a podcast about attachment and theology um, and spirituality. And um, on there, I'm talking with my friend Amy, who's a licensed clinical social worker. Um, and also interviewing, uh, experts actually in the, in the field. So recently I was able to interview my friend Jeffrey, who actually did some of the studies, um, at the Ainsworth Institute around attachment styles. Um, but looking at that through a faith lens and what that means. So yeah, again, it's called attached to the invisible and, um, it's been really great so far. And that's that's the that's the one that's related to this. I also have a weird podcast with my wife, 
where we look at like niche uh, evangelical media from the 90s. But that's a whole other thing. It's a whole other thing, but I really love it. And like, I'm really loving these like, like niche things that are have that high nostalgic value because I mean, uh, like I totally grew up on those niche Christian media things also. And I'm both like honored and embarrassed about that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, But it's good. It's, it's good thought provoking entertainment. So, but tonight uh, we're talking, talking attachment, which I've re- I really loved uh, listening to, to your podcast, talking about attachment and, and theology, both because I grew up in really similar theological traditions as well. And, you know, when you were talking about the anxious attachment, I was like, oh, my gosh, they're describing my inner world. Uh-huh. What is this? <laughs> so uh, it, it just answers. Uh, for me, I, I have... I, I don't think I could fairly call myself a specialist in attachment theory because I haven't taken like a whole lot of like official trainings or like mm-hmm. read a whole lot of books, but the the stuff that I have read um, makes so much sense. And mm-hmm. when I bring attachment into any given client scenario or uh, I'm filtering any given diagnosis through this other lens of attachment, it feels like attachment dynamics are the glue for a lot of the rest of it or they they fill in the cracks and i just i understand myself better i understand my relationships better i understand my clients better when i factor in attachment so would you offer a brief summary of what attachment theory is and um kind of how it works yeah so uh you know we have decided that it's attachment science now because there's been enough research that it's no longer a theory um And it's really this framework around relationship and connection. And so we have this core drive to connect with others, um, usually at least one other significant person, usually more than that. Um, And really that drive determines a lot of our internal world and also a lot of our behavior. And if we can understand that, then we can understand a lot of human behavior that otherwise looks uh, sort of like nonsensical or illogical. Um, And it really started looking at infants. So they're trying to decide, like, what's the quality of relationships, relationship between this one year old and their mother. Um, But as we've we've gone on and done more research, we found out that this framework actually applies to everyone from the cradle to the grave. Um, Everyone has this need for connection. And when we can't get the connection that we need, we have different ways of managing that disconnection. And so that could be like, we just shut down our needs and we shut down our emotions and we just sort of, you know, I'm going to do this on my own and it's up to me and I don't need anyone else. And um, I'm just going to shut others out. Right. And we can see that in a one-year-old that's like, well, I'm just going to play with my toys and I'm going to totally ignore mom because I can't count on her to be there. Or... If it's like, well, I know that I only get connection if I get really loud or really clingy, right? The one-year-old whines and screams and cries. Um, But then you grow up and you're like texting your partner all the time. Or uh, you're always monitoring, like, are you there for me? Are you paying attention to me? Um, And so we see this, yeah, across the life spectrum. And it really impacts um, our relationships with those most important to us. Um, but again, across the spectrum, we have, we have these relationships, these dynamics of relationships, um, with everyone in our, not everyone in our life, but a lot of people in our life. With a lot of people. And you're right. It's, it's very much across the lifespan. It starts with whoever our primary caregivers are and ends up very much impacting whoever our primary partners end up being. 
And mm -hmm. when we talk about like what it, uh, how attachment shows up everywhere in, in my line of uh, therapy, uh, which is addictions and compulsive behaviors, we talk a lot about where there, where there's smoke, there's fire, where there's addiction, there's trauma of some sort. And it's not mm -hmm. always big T acute. I've been raped. I've been in war. I've been shot at. A lot of times it's ongoing situations like, well, I mean, systemic racism is a, one example or mm -hmm. systemic misogyny, uh, living in stressful situations on an ongoing basis. But sometimes even more subtle than that or layered around all of that is attachment failure where mm -hmm. there was a failure to have a secure bond with a healthy person. And so in, in, in a need to cope with life and to organize life around something, someone, this substance presents itself or this highly dopaminergic behavior presents itself as a viable option in the moment. And obviously there's problems with that, but it gets the person through. And so they end up uh, attaching to alcohol, cocaine, sex, porn, food as the mm -hmm. thing that will make them feel safe and okay. And so we can say in that sense, addiction and compulsion, they are bonding disorders or attachment disorders. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, evangelicals, uh, which is uh, my background, uh, evangelical Christians really like attachment because it's this the study of connection and it talks about this drive, powerful drive we have to connect um, and to have relationship, which really does reflect a triune God, right, that is in relationship with themselves. But on a very like scientific like level, really that drive is driven by emotional regulation. Uh, we need people to help us regulate our emotions, right? That's why babies cry, because they want to be picked up and held and rocked. Um, they want their needs taken care of. But we know that uh, for babies, you know, Freud thought that it was just, you know, babies just love their mothers because their mothers gave them warmth and milk. Um, but obviously, we know that just being warm and getting food doesn't actually meet the needs that we have and can cause failure to thrive. You know, think about orphans that just sit in nurseries all day without being touched, right? That's that lack of connection that can actually, you know, keep us from surviving. That's making me think about um, like, like attachment parenting or when attachment parenting goes wrong. Like you're talking about how, how attachment is forged through the, the, the emotional connections, not just meeting physical needs. Something I'm thinking about one parenting strategy that's been proposed in some churches, you know, when you're when you have a baby and you're trying to transition them to independent independent sleeping to just like have them cry it out because mm -hmm. I mean theoretically they're fed theoretically they're clean they're safe uh, mm -hmm. they they should be fine and so they should learn to you know obedience or, or something and mm -hmm. you know just just be allowed to to manage their own distress problem being babies don't have coping skills. You know, we, right. those are something we all have to learn later in life. And so, and we learn that from our attachment figure. And so. Yeah. Coming full circle, we need, we learn early on when I'm in distress, when I'm upset, I can reach out to mom or dad and they're going to respond to me and they're going to help me calm down. And if they, if I have a parent that can't do that, uh, because of whatever they have going on in their lives. And I learned that, you know, every parent no parent is always available, right? For sure. Um, I think it's something like 30% of the time is is the like threshold of like being available to your kid. Um, so, you know, way less than like be average. Um, and so really like, 
you know, but to be there enough of the time so that that child learns, yeah, when I, when I'm upset and I need help, I can get it. But if we grew up in a situation where that's not the case, then it's like, I need to figure out how to manage these emotions on my own. And so those are kids that they'll, they'll separate themselves from their emotional experience. They'll dissociate, they'll stuff those feelings down they'll try to distract themselves and then they grow up. What are, what are really effective ways of numbing emotions, addictive behaviors. And so, yeah, if you didn't learn that it's okay, how to reach out during that time of need, then you're going to figure out how to do it on your own. And the older you get, the more you learn effective ways of doing it on your own that ironically disrupts your relationships, right? That is the irony. Uh, we, we humans, we're, we're very good at adapting and we're good at surviving bad situations mm-hmm. we're not good at doing that in sustainable ways at least not without some some gu- some external guidance or some external input right yeah so yeah and then taking that from you know this general idea of attachment and how attachment is how we regulate our emotions to thinking about what that means for god and so this relationship with god first of all Uh, It's really interesting. Researchers have found that we actually do, if you believe, especially in a theistic God, uh, like a monotheistic God, um, I guess, if if you believe in a monotheistic God, then this is more likely to be the case where you actually relate to God in the same way that you relate to other attachment figures in your life. It, it, clicks on in the same part of your brain, right side of your brain, right hemisphere, right? And you actually relate and you feel that same drive to connect um, when it comes to our divine parent in the same way that we do with our partners and and parents and kids, etc. Now, this is really, I think this is really important because how I have understood uh, at least uh, monotheistic Protestant evangelical theologies before is that the theology tends to be, and correct me if I'm wrong here, because I think you've studied a little bit more than I have, the theology tends to be very cognitively oriented. And we might understand the the salvation process as like giving intellectual assent to a right set of mm-hmm. beliefs. And so very, very cerebral, very left brain in a sense. But it sounds like what you're talking about is a very you know right brain experience, mm-hmm. very not just emotional, although there's a variable there, but a very much like a whole person experiential mm-hmm. bit. And, um, and it seems like there's maybe like a gap there or there's, mm-hmm. there's some, <laughs> there's some room for right. error. Well, there. I mean, what's really hard is that we do, we come to, to spirituality with this need to know that we're loved, to know that we're accepted, to know that we matter. And when we come, bring that need to our relationships, um, we can see it, right? It's really, um, in terms of uh, in terms of secure attachment and secure relationships, it's really not about the words or the statements or the information. It's about like how that person's face lights up when you walk in the room, or it's someone reaching out to you and saying like, "Hey, I'd love to get together soon." Or it's like my son who's four just like scooting a little closer to me on the couch, right? It's like all these nonverbals. And, um, you know, the, I, I totally allow for spirituality and the Holy Spirit, but in general, like our five senses don't have that available to us when it comes to God. Right. So that song, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so that's that song was 
speaking to a very intellectual, logical, you know, data-based understanding of love, which is from what from what I've experienced, very much what is presented in theological schools, very much presented from the pulpit. Mm-hmm. And now it sounds like you're saying, wait, that does not actually create secure attachment to just know that God is there, to know that Jesus loves me. Uh, sounds like that's not actually right. Enough. Yeah. Um, so for one, I'll just put out there that our parental relationships have the tendency to set a lot of groundwork for that. Um, and so if you grow up in a home where you have parents that show you that you matter, um, that you are worth worthwhile, that you're lovable, like all those things, then, um, it's going to be easy, even if there's some like theology that's sort of like not great, um, to just sort of like not let that, uh, not internalize that as much. Um, but, uh, what I've, what I've found, and this is anecdotal, uh, more so than anything, um, (laughs) is that if you come to God with this insecure attachment, with this feeling of like, I'm not lovable coming into the church, uh, a lot of times the church, uh, in the evangelical tradition that I was brought up in doesn't actually have the tools or ability to create a secure attachment, to repair that attachment to God. Um, and yeah, there, there are like kind of some specific reasons for that. Yeah. What are, uh, what are some examples you're thinking of? Um, yeah, right. We know that God loves us. Right. Um, but there's a lot of conflicting messages. And I think one of the most harmful messages in the church is that when you sin, it separates you from God. And when we think about this in an attachment framework, right, I have a four year old when he throws a fit when he hits his sister when whatever it is right like i don't i mean previous generations may send him to his room usually (laughs) um and not to say we don't do that but usually i'm going to get down on my hands and knees and talk to him right and what i want him to know even if i send him to his room is that our relationship is not in jeopardy depending on your behavior right that part doesn't matter uh what matters is that i love you you're my son, we're secure. And then let's talk about, um, let's talk about your behavior. Cause it's not okay in our family to hit. It's not okay in our family to scream. Um, but those are two separate things. But in the church, the way that we talk about distance, um, from God and distance and closeness is usually about behavior. So we'll say like, Oh, are, how is your walk with God? Are you, are you close or are you far? Right. That's very much what what I remember also. We'll measure closeness or distance from God based on behavior. Like, are you doing these, you know, kind of objective mm-hmm. things? Like, you know, you know, are you, you know, are you avoiding drinking, avoiding sex, avoiding secular music, et cetera, et cetera. Right. <laughs> um, exactly. Yeah. Um, but if you, yeah. But the other, the other component of that too, is I feel like it's, uh, and this is a weird tension uh, within at least my Protestant circles back then too, is, as much as we, it tries to be like a very intellectual tradition, it's also very emotive. Mm-hmm. Like we'll say, we'll kind of base our closeness based on how we feel about it. Like, oh, like I feel the spirit or I feel the joy of the mm-hmm. Lord. Or like, you know, we'll say, you know, are you like an on-fire Christian or not? Which, I mean, what does that look like? But but there's this really like emotion component to it, which, which again, I mean, I, and I feel like that may be a little bit more characteristic of like more anxiously attached people to... Uh, be a little bit more prone to over being over emotional mm-hmm. sometimes or 
over reliant on on emotions. Right. Yeah. What happened in the in, um, in evangelicalism is that the church was very traditional and very tied to rhythms and routines. Um, and what they said was like, those are dead traditions. They don't mean anything. We want a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, which in, in a lot of ways, I think like whatever is being reformed, there probably is some room for like, yeah, that wasn't working very well. But what happened in that moment is now, whether I determine whether I'm close to God or not is how I feel. Um, and it's really made up in like my brain. Um, and especially if you have anxiety, uh, if you have a uh, preoccupied attachment where it's like, I, I don't know if I'm close, then you're going to do all these behaviors. I'm going to pray really hard. I'm going to try really hard to stop sinning. I'm going to, I'm going to go to church all the time. Um, I'm going to try to like, make sure to not have unhealthy thought or like, you know, sinful thoughts. Um, and all of this is because I want to know that I'm close to you. Right. And it's really sad because it makes me think about these toddlers that are like clinging to their mom. And it's like, I don't know if I can trust you to stay here. I need to try really hard. For example, I was reading a Francis, a bit of a Francis Chan book, who's a popular evangelical author. And he's like, as long as you're chasing after Jesus, you can't sin. As long as you're running, you're safe. And I'm like, uh-huh. it sounds like a subtitle of a horror movie. As long as you're running, you're <laughs> right. safe. Isn't that the premise of like Alien right, yeah. or something? No, that's no one can hear you scream. <laughs> right. Uh, but. but yeah, it's really uh, this idea of like, it's up. That sounds yeah, exhausting. Yeah, it's up to you yeah. to maintain the relationship. And when we think about dysfunctional yeah. uh, child-parent dynamics, that's exactly what we see is where it's the child's yeah. responsibility to maintain the relationship. Which is so very peculiar because one of the basic tenets of like Protestant theologies uh, is the 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 soli fide, sola scriptura, mm-hmm. sola gracia, the only by faith, the by faith, by grace, you know, scripture alone. So theoretically, we're not supposed to be doing anything, and yet somehow that experience just leaves us not having anything to do, like no tangible, no tangible way. And now in my head, I'm comparing, contrasting to you know, um, I, my family's uh, Orthodox mm-hmm. now. And it's it's the it's the ancient form of Christianity where there there's a lot of tradition, a lot of ritual. We delineate between like you know dead tradition and living tradition because we know what it means and what it's supposed mm-hmm. to do. But one of the one of the huge benefits is that it's not prohibitive of emotion, but it's not based on emotion. Mm-hmm. You know we will we will talk about sin as you know m- missing the mark and something to to be to be addressed, but. But there's this idea that, yes, even if when I sin, I tarnish the likeness of God that that's in me, not the image, just mm-hmm. the likeness, um, we have a way back. Mm-hmm. It's handed to us. And, you know, and for us, there's, there, there's, there's, there's the sacraments. It's, you know, we, we know, I know if I, if I sin, I, I know I can go to confession and I can repair this and God will meet me there. And there's a much more functional, active, like my whole person's engaged mm-hmm. in it, which like coming out of like, A, like as a person, I feel... Like I have like anxious attachment and then, you know, having been through this whole system of like, I'm really vulnerable to like, um, being pulled around by emotions and everything, like being able to step into like, Oh, here's a, here's a tangible structure for, for repairing the rupture mm-hmm. tends to add a lot of security. And so, I mean, I'm probably not quite there, but I feel like a lot more secure in yeah. things now because I have mm-hmm. that structure, but it's sounding like that's, one of those other things that gets modeled in early childhood relationships also is like when I'm mean, like I'm imagining that, you know, send the kid to his room, her room scenario where 
they, they hit somebody, you send them to the room, there's rupture, and there's not any connection mm-hmm. there. And it's just like you're left to like hope that my parent still loves me or I have to wait until they they mm-hmm. decide they're open to coming to see me versus, you know, the parent like, st- you know, getting down on the kid's level, interacting, attaching, attuning, and, you know, reassuring that the, the relationship is not in jeopardy, but we just need to correct your behaviors. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. And that's, I love, uh, for one, I love Eastern Orthodoxy, not enough to, to, uh, convert, but, um, <laughs> yet, but, uh, it's really different in, in, in Eastern Orthodoxy being, uh, being in a relationship with God and being part of the people of God is you show up to this community and you do these things. And it's actually this tangible reminder to our sensory bodies, to our systems, our nervous systems, this reassurance of of God's continual love, right? And I really love that part because it's this rhythm. And we even think about how children need rhythms. And I think adults also need rhythms. It really does create this sense of safety for for our for our nervous systems, which is connected to our attachment. Whereas uh, what I grew up with was God is a holy God that can't stand sin. And so if you want to get close to him, you have to be purified, which is done through the work of Jesus on the cross. But it creates this sense that there are these shadowy parts of myself that I don't like, the selfish parts, right? The uh, the sinful parts, the lustful parts. And it's like, well, I'm good with God as long as Jesus hides that from him so i can either be fully known or fully accepted but it's not both and Mm. i know that this is like so symbolic but it's that's really especially for those that grow up in this type of evangelicalism that's what it is you know when i was like four years old i was doing crafts where it's like cut out like a black heart and that black heart like signifies uh your sinful corrupt broken core of yourself right and and in order to get close to god it has to become white and jesus makes it white which by the way there's some uh perpetuation of racism in there um uh-huh. but <laughs> i'm grimacing for the for the person who can't see i'm grimacing right yeah a lot, <laughs> so. um, but if you think yeah. about that so let's look at some of the attachment research uh set shows us that kids that go through emotional neglect will have that or worse, um, will have this sense that there's something at their core that is broken and that drives other people away. It's this like really intense feeling of shame that's really implicit, oftentimes not explicit, right? And now you're actually giving a name for it and you're saying, well, that's actually sin in your heart and you have to get rid of it if you're going to be close to God. But if you have attachment trauma that's created that sense of shame, that feeling doesn't go away. So then you get into this this um, pattern of like, I need to confess more because I still feel bad, right? I'm trying to get clean enough to get close to God. And again, this is like this, this really clingy, anxious, like I'm trying to get close to God, which is really different than God just being like, I don't care where, like, what you look like, where you are, like, I'm just here with you and I'm delighted to be with you. It really is a different sort of like perfectionistic, rigid, uh, sort of narcissistic father God that wants you to be perfect before you can be a part of this family. I wonder what you think about uh, about this. So, 
so encountering a really literally black and white theology like that, like, you know, sin means you're, you know, you're broken and something about you is unacceptable to, to encounter that from the position of an avoidant attachment, an anxious attachment, or, you know, even worse, like a disorganized attachment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it does have a lot of devastation that comes with that. But um, what about from a secure attachment? I mean, have you observed people who genuinely exhibit like secure attachment? Um, what tends to be their experience of the sort of theology? Yeah, um, I think for one, I think that they're able to um, to hold it. Just, I mean, hold it in a different way and integrate it in their experience in a different way. And so, I think that they are able to to have an experience of God that's like. All right, like I don't need to be perfect. Um, you know, I'm okay. Uh, I, you know, God's there when I need Him, um, and I can trust that He'll be there. And I'm not exactly sure. It's really different for different people. Um, it's really interesting. Todd Hall uh, and Annie uh, Fujikawa um, and some others. Are you familiar? Okay, I'm not. you're just nodding ferociously. Um, <laughs> right. I'm reflecting oh, yeah. as right. a counselor. <laughs> um, they have uh, done some work on implicit spirituality and attachment. And so um, there's what we say and what we feel. And a lot of times those things are really different. And so we say like, yeah, we know that we're not expected to be perfect. Right. We know that like Jesus's blood covers whatever sin we have. Um, and some people are able to take that and run with it. But other people, I think, tend to be like, okay, well, I don't really know if I'm close and they're going to pick up on a lot of this, um, the implicit messages about like sin separates you from God. And I'm not blaming the people with insecure attachment. What I think that means is that like, it's not great if the church can only um, provide secure attachment to people that already have it. And if you're coming in with like attachment trauma, it just perpetuates it. I don't, I don't think that's great. Yeah. It, that's definitely not great. So, so, here, so here's this very complex picture. All of, all of these variables. So, so you have a so you have a person who, I guess, if the if if the ideal end result is they have a secure attachment with God, first they have to get through the hurdle of do I get a secure attachment from at least one of my parents? You know, ideally both, but do I get it from at mm -hmm. least one? Uh, and then. Uh, I may or may not get that, but then I also have to get through the the hurdle of will I encounter God through through the church, mm -hmm. and uh, is the church going to facilitate um, a God that can be securely attached to or not? Um, and that's that's both looking at how the church understands who God is, as well as what are the practices of the church itself, mm -hmm. and what kind of whole person experience do, do, do they provide for you? And so, right, yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot there. Um, and it really is such like a spectrum. So a lot of attachment research around, uh, God and attachment thus far has asked, um, is people's attachment based on everything that their parent was, or is it based on everything that their parent wasn't, <laughs> which is like, you know, really framing that question around, like, we're pretty sure that it has a lot to do with your parental relationship and not asking, like, what are the other factors? Um, and so there's been a little bit of research about uh, secure attachment and queer folks in the church um, because, you know, there's parents, but there's also growing up in that sort of environment. Um, 
especially you know obviously if you're in a in a non-affirming space um and then yeah there's like disability there's race there's all these different things and there's a lot um to be asked of what we do find is that Oftentimes, people with an insecure attachment will have what looks like a really secure attachment with God if they convert to Christianity. Um, but then over time, their uh, their their attachment to God will change back to kind of what they're used to. So that same insecurity, which I think fits with um, evangelicalism. Um, there's a church near my house that had a reader board that said, come as you are, change once inside, which I think like speaks for it, right? Like you are accepted as you are, but like once you're like start a path of faith, like you need to, to work hard. And it's sort of like this both and, which is pretty confusing. It, it, it has this sort of like disorganized, um, sort of, uh, you know, uh, tinge to it, I think. It's complex, uh, and it's it's complex to to look at something like this in in maybe more more process terms. Um, like, I mean, I mean, when we're thinking about it, like it's it's eternity, and we you know, there's a, there's a lot at stake. We'd we'd like to know. We'd like to be sure. You know, right now on the day of conversion, this is what's gonna. This is my my fate mm-hmm. now, um, and so you know, leave, you know, leaving leaving some of these variables, some of these mysteries mm-hmm. open. You know, it could could cause a lot more tension and anxiety. Right. Um, even though like sometimes that tends to be more the natural progression for growth anyway. Like, I mean, I mean, we see this with, with clients. I mean, there's never, I don't think there's, there's a point in therapy where, okay, here was a magic session. Now, now you're cured. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a lot more, we, we grow into it. We grow into it. We grow into it. Um, we strengthen the relationship as we grow into it. And at some point we, we realize, oh, wait, we've grown into mm-hmm. something. You've grown into something. Um, right. You know, now you're good. Yeah, and I think so. that the church um, has, in a lot of ways, uh, not allowed enough space for people for that process. Um, I don't think that there's any, just like with parenting, there's no right way to do it. Um, it, it is a process and it's a relationship. And when I think about people's relationship with God, and I'm thinking about uh, clinicians, but also pastors, ministry leaders, uh, I think it's so important to try your best to create some space and explore what is your relationship with God? What is that like on a day to day? And it takes some time because people will be like, oh, yeah, God loves me. You know, they'll recite the things that they know to say. Um, but uh, there's this story of this pastor that asked his church one morning, you know, raise your hand if if you know that God loves you and everybody raised their hands and he goes, raise your hand if you know, God likes you and nobody raised their hands. Ooh. Right. And that's oh, what, that's so right. Sad. And a lot of the, the research has shown like, you know, religion is this really, uh, can be a really positive resource for our client, for clients. Um, you know, it can be a really good thing, but imagine that you have, uh, this, you know, kind of divine person with you all the time that is always judging you and always disappointed and always thinks you could be trying harder, right? That's not going to be, that's not going to be a good thing for mental health. That's actually going to, you know, increase. That'd be right. really scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you're yeah. stuck in and this, I'm... like, I want you close cause I want this connection with you, but I'm also afraid cause you're just going to judge me. 
I'm thinking back again to maybe what 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 the prototype attachment is. You know, our relationships with our our, our parental figures. You know, maybe a father figure, maybe a mother figure, maybe a set of father figures, uh, etc. And you know, as uh, one of one of the first things you you learn or how, or have to figure out is can I trust my parent or mm-hmm. not? Um, it's the the trust versus mistrust stage. Uh, followed closely by, you know, like, you know, the shame mm-hmm. stage. Um, like, am, like, can I trust my parent? And is it okay for me to be right. here? And, you know, if you very quickly learn, I cannot trust my parents, mm-hmm. and it's not okay for me to be here, then in that attachment context, yeah, someone says something's wrong with you, that's devastating, because that means the the relationship is threatened, and that relationship is my source of safety, security, and so I am threatened. And so I, there's a way I become very... I'm unable to tolerate anything being wrong with me or anybody pointing out anything wrong with me because that <laughs> automatically means uh, like danger, danger rejection. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I'm wondering in, in contrast. So say say you have the other experience. Say you do learn, I can trust my mm-hmm. parent at least thirty yeah. percent, and and I am a lot, and it, and it is good for me to be here. I am welcome here. If that's your instinctive secure base, I feel like at that point. You, you can you can be told something needs to change or even I'm kind of angry with you about mm-hmm. something and that's painful that's never comfortable but it's not a devastating threat because like you're you're sure of the relationship right. you're you're sure of your relationship the, the object of your mm-hmm. relationship your your attachment figure I think that's what I wish for so much in in, in churches is where I mean we have this idea um, of a God is like angry mm-hmm. or God is judge mm-hmm. and I feel like there's just so many ripples that come out of that. I mean, compared to like, what if we could see God as shepherd? Right. What if we could see God as 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 healer, mm-hmm. as physician? Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, physician might still say, "Hey, that's cancerous. We need to cut that out." But like, the whole basis of the relationship is different. To where you say, "Okay, yes, I trust you mm-hmm. to do that for me." Right? Yeah. I mean, I I like to think of God as uh, a therapist. Imagine that, right? But when my clients come in, I'm not like, oh, my gosh, you're disgusting. You need to get out of here until you're better. (laughs) I'm like, I'm so glad to see you. I'm so glad you're here. I see that like what the way that you're functioning right now is you're in pain. You might be hurt. You know, if we're thinking about addictions, like you're hurting yourself, you're hurting others. Um, But I'm really glad that you're here and I'm excited to do some healing work with you. And it is going to require you to take some steps. But also at the same time, like I'm going to like I have a plan for us. So you don't really need to worry. You just need to to show up and, you know, um, and be able to trust me a little bit. Um, And I think that's a really good picture of God. Um, In contrast, um, I I think about... um, so focus on the family is this evangelical organization, and we talk a lo- about a lot of their uh, media on our other podcast. <laughs> I've heard of the focus before. <laughs> uh, there's this TV show called McGee and Me, um, and the first it's a, a TV show, you know, for for families, um, and it's about this 11 year old kid, and he lies about his neighbor, and then uh, confesses to his parents, and. His dad says, um, you know, the thing about lying is it's a sin and you got to be careful because sin can cut off your relationship from God. And you, you're just like, okay, so if an 11 year old by lying can cut like, is at risk of cutting off his relationship with God, then like the rest of us are screwed. But really that's, that's like, 
a lot of the picture that we're often given rather than the God that's like, oh yeah, so you lied. Like I'm still here. I think about Dan Siegel and how he talks about connect then redirect. And actually like, as I've gone back through the scriptures, new Testament, old Testament and seen covenant and what covenant means um, a lot of us have grown up with this idea of like, you have to keep the law or else, you know, and you need to do this or that. And even understanding like um, the, now I'm getting nerdy into like the theology of side of things, but as we've done more scholarship on the new perspective of on Paul, we've learned that actually um, the, the Jew, the Judeo understanding of law wasn't, you have to follow these rules or you're out. It actually was, God says, you're my people, you're born Jewish, there's nothing that can change that, other people can join if they want, and then this law is, this is how we're going to do it together, right? It's sort of like, we're a family, and here are the family rules on the on the fridge, right? It's not like, all right, well, if you don't, if you don't follow the rules, like, you're going out the door. It's just like, these are two separate things, um, but it's been, I think, for a lot of people, hard to read. Uh, to go to this like ancient text and understand that that's what's going on. It's true. I mean, ancient texts are challenging to understand sometimes anyway, but, um, but what you're talking about just with this idea of like, here's, here's the covenant here, here's the code of law on the fridge. Uh, What's, and it's, it's this like triangulation of what's my relationship to my family in light of this this law, or what's my relationship to the law in light of my family. I mean that that's a really complex question, and I feel like a lot of that hinges on a lot of really really instinctive like pre-verbal assumptions about how mm-hmm. things work. Like, um, and again, like it's this idea of like instinctively, can I trust that my family is good and, and that I belong here? Like, if that's my instinctive understanding, then yeah, uh, something like a law is not going to be threatening. It's actually going to be like a really helpful framework for here's how I thrive in my family. But if that trust isn't there, then it just becomes, oh, here's all of the hurdles I have to cross to get to my family and I can't do it and it's exhausting right. and it's just easier to do drugs. Uh-huh. So, so, so this would make me wonder too um, in terms of practical application because you know i've (laughs) that's where sermons go is practical applications (laughs) i know this isn't a sermon but i've heard a few (laughs) um we talked about how an ideal an ideal we would hope for within 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 christianity within just a practice of spirituality um we would want we want we would want people to have a secure relationship with god or unhindered communion with god and even outside Christian traditions, we would want people to be able to approach their their higher power, their divine image, practice their tradition freely and unhindered and from a place of, of thriving and not of guilt or obligation. So uh, what do you think, Crispin, would be some ideas uh, for, for parents who are tasked with inducting <laughs> kids into their attachment styles? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, no pressure, right. not at all. Uh, as well as, I mean, what would be some ideas for, um, for for churches on how on some things they could adjust to to be more facilitative of secure attachments? Yeah, I think that, um, that you asked a lot of questions. Uh, <laughs> I did. <laughs> one thing that we know about secure attachment is um, one of the best things parents can do actually is to do their own work. Um, and so as you do your own work and work towards a more secure attachment, cause this is all on a spectrum, 
um, you know, categories are helpful for research, but people don't live in these boxes. Um, and that, by the way, is a little tidbit that I got from my friend Jeffrey Ulrich. Um, Jeffrey and Amy Ulrich uh, wrote a book that is coming out in June on Zondervan called uh, The Six Needs of Every Child. Was this the guy you interviewed about secure attachment? Yeah, and it's a really great book. And they talk about these different needs that kids have um, and how to be responsive. And, and I really like it. They actually take the pressure off and, and they say, you know, it's not about getting it perfect because it is a relationship. It's really about being attuned to your child enough of the time and understanding what's going on with them and and um, and going forward from there. So I would say, yeah, for parents doing your own work, uh, reading that book would be great. Um, and just especially right now, as we're all quarantined together, uh, having time to be with. It's really interesting. Um, there is this, uh, this idea in... Um, attachment framework of just being with and that creates secure attachment just this idea but uh the psychoanalyst who came up with this term he calls it communion which i really appreciated so the, <laughs> right That's yeah perfect. and so thinking about yeah it's just this idea of just being with it's not about being evaluated it's not about being judged it's not with a goal it's just you know it's like wrestling with your kids or whatever it is right um, so yeah, having that time to connect and delight with them, delight in them, um, is really great. Well, when you were talking about delight, I, um, or maybe this was from, I listened to your podcast, the interview with, with, with Jeffrey Ulrich, and he was talking about this idea of not just loving your kids, but delighting mm -hmm. in them. And, um, that, that stood out to me a lot as, as definitely something to, to work on for my own parent, my own parenting relationships as like, yeah. It's kind of like it feels like kind of you know a, a step beyond just mere presence, but like I like being mm -hmm. here too, right? Uh, and that that just communicates so much powerful worth and mm -hmm. value. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's I think that's huge, and just having a rhythm of that is important. And it doesn't have to be all the time. I think we really feel a pressure these days to like get all the stuff done and also just like sit down and like with our kids on the floor all the time. And you can't do both, but you can do some of it some of the time. You can do some of it, yeah. Um, I've also thought, well, I know in some parenting circles they talk about, is it better to have qual uh, quality time or quantity time? And I, th I think the, the, the idea is yeah, try, trying to manufacture quality time just makes it weird. Mm -hmm. And quantity time is good if you have quantities of time, which a lot of us don't. But um, so kind of the compromise they, uh, thing might, might make sense is, Whatever whatever time you do have, make it uh, high attention mm -hmm. time, like really intentional time. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, again, not even about like I have an agenda as much as just like okay, I have I have twenty minutes to be at home. I'm going to spend eighteen of them making eye mm -hmm. contact with you, or like being right next to you, or playing Legos with you, or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think in terms of uh, church, um, there are a, so many different things that churches can do. Um, and I, I think pastors, uh, reading up on and learning about attachment is a great idea. Um, but, um, I think one of the things that's been most important for me at my church, um, which is Cascade PDX, um, is our pastor has been really great. Our pastors, um, have both been really great about, um, 
really accepting um, all the different parts of us and the different places that we're at. And so always making that really clear um, that, hey, wh whatever you're feeling, wherever you're at, that's not a threat to the relationship with God. Um, one time we were doing communion and communion is right this time. Um, it's a very um, sacred time. And Kurt said, you know, come up to the table. And a lot of times we have this idea of we have to be really perfect or holy or righteous or whatever to approach the table. He's like, but Jesus just sat with a bunch of normal people at a table. And in that same way, we can bring our whole selves. And so I think if pastors as much as possible can talk about, um, ex you know, allowing people's whole selves to be there, um, I think is really important. Um, and really trying to like under um, undermine that idea that sin separates us from God and we have to be like perfect or pure or, you know, whatever it is to get close to God. So, right. And yeah, emphasizing, you know, God's a big God. He's not petty. He's not easily offended. And uh, and I'm thinking, too, I mean, just the way I mean, God, God's created us. I mean, we believe God has created us in his image and his image is good and his image is indelible. It's always mm -hmm. there. Um, you know, even, even if, even if the, like the, like the, the likeness gets you know tarnished a bit, like we're always in the image of God and always worthy of veneration and mm -hmm. dignity. And, and yeah, we, we get to show right. up. Uh, and yeah, uh, that's important. Right. To remember. There's this thing that comes out a lot and I feel like it's, sometimes less in sermons and more by like the worship pastors, little like ramblings in between songs. But oftentimes there's this message of like, God loves you, even though there's no reason he should. Um, and I think that that's really harmful. Um, and I love to contrast that with Mr. Rogers, who was an ordained minister who always would tell kids, I like you just the way you are. Right. And I think like holding those two things in contrast really puts like a fine point on it. Like no one wants to be told, well, you know, if my wife said like, in fact, I have couples that say this, they'll be like, I love you, but I don't really like you. And it's like, ugh, like knife in the heart. Like we don't want to just be loved out of obligation. We want there to be something about us, about us, who we are, that is worthwhile, that's unique, that's delighted in. And what the the funny thing is there too, uh, I'm thinking back through some of my experiences where, um, like going through like my, my own recovery process in, in particular, where you know it was there there were things I was, I was doing that were really unhealthy and and destructive, and I and I, I was needing to change some things, and I didn't I didn't want to because reasons, mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, I was proud and arrogant and really selfish and a whole bunch of things. And, and scared and a whole lot yeah, of things. Yeah, I was going to say that um, the Rogerian uh, eft -er in me is like, I'm sure that you like were really trying to manage some really difficult stuff and that doesn't make it okay, <laughs> but it probably right. has some sort of logic to it. For sure. Uh, yeah. Um, and I remember that there were authority figures in my life, you know, Christian pastors at the time who were like demanding change or you know, showing me the logic of it or showing me from scripture, like, you know, here's where you're wrong. And I really uh, had no openness to that because I just, I couldn't accept that. I couldn't stomach it. I, uh, I wasn't interested in hearing from them. Um, but there were a couple of people in my life who 
when I talked, they would listen. And when I shared, when I confessed, they would give mm -hmm. me hugs. And they, you know, I mean, they, they were, they weren't, I mean, they, they would share if they were concerned or, mm -hmm. I mean, whatever. I mean, they were just like, they weren't condoning what I was doing, but they, they were accepting mm -hmm. of me. And, and they were also mutually vulnerable with me about their stuff too. That really helped. And I, for them, I wanted to mm -hmm. change. When I knew I was secure, when I knew I was loved, then it is. Then I was like, okay, for this person, I will go through the effort. For this person, for these couple of people, I will. I will change, and I will push myself through rigors and and, and become a better person, um, because I was first mm -hmm. loved. Um, yeah, right. Well, that. when we start seeing ourselves as loved, as lovable, that it then it actually we don't need to use as many as those of those coping skills to deal with shame. And you probably won't be surprised to learn that uh, secure attachment is correlated with more ethical behavior, which is something that I wish more pastors knew that if there's this sense of security, then the, then those like behaviors follow. Right. Lo love, love first. Love, lo love leads the way. Um, yeah. Someone should write a song about love being all you need or something. <laughs> that would, that would be <laughs> really catchy. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Um, Crispin, thanks so much for sharing some thoughts and bringing up some ideas uh, and uh, also recommending some books. We should get some of those book titles on the liner notes, and then that'll be really good. Yeah. Uh, do you have any last thoughts uh, to drop? Just the that this is the tip of the iceberg. Um, so, but yeah, if, if this has whetted your appetite, uh, we are, you know, putting out episodes attached to the invisible um, and yeah, there's actually not a lot, um, out there right now, um, around this conversation outside of academic circles, but I'm hoping that as the church, we start to talk about this more and more. It is being led, um, along the way by people like Jeffrey and Amy, um, and, am you know, I, I hope myself and having these conversations. Um, so yeah, I, th I think that's it for now. Thanks so much for having me Sounds back. Sounds great. Absolutely. If a listener wanted to get a hold of you, what's a good I have a website, um, crispinmayfield.com. So I'm actually working on a book on this topic as well. So um, so there's a lot. It's kind of it been a lot of what I've been thinking about lately, and I get really excited about it. So Okay. Well, I'm, I'm excited for that book when it comes out. Uh, I might actually buy that one on paper and, like, <laughs> curl up with it and, like, attach uh -huh. to it. <laughs> so. Well, thanks so much. And uh, thanks, listener, for following along. Let us know your thoughts, your feedback, and uh, five-star ratings are nice, too. But um, check back next time, and let's, let's keep the conversation going. We love your feedback and invite you to share your thoughts about this conversation. Also, we'd appreciate your review and five-star rating on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Share your thoughts through email at smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us at facebook.com slash smartcouncilpodcast. Please consider supporting this podcast with a financial donation through patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Our theme music is by Trent Price. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. Thanks again for listening, and let's keep the conversation going. Music